Hi everyone, my name is Mike DeBliss. I am presenting today on the topic of cross-examination. The title of this program is Cross-Examination Made Simple. It's actually a two-part series and in today's session I'll be covering part one. Um, so a little bit about me. Um, I've been an attorney for about 15 years and I started out as a public defender in the New Jersey Office of the Public Defender. Um, and it was one of the most incredible experiences that I've ever had. Um, I gained so much experience in um, litigating, uh, not only in trial, but also in pretrial um, motion practice. Um, and a lot of this presentation is informed by the trials that I had during my uh, tenure at the Public Defender's Office. I also learned um, something that um, I don't think I was prepared for when I began the job, and that was for dealing with clients who were in crisis um, and where the stakes were so high, where they were facing the loss of their fundamental liberty and you were the only thing standing between them and jail. Um, so it really made you appreciate the gravity of what you were doing and how um, it impacts the lives of uh, fellow human beings. Um, so it really made me feel that this work um, required me to pour every ounce of time and effort um, into uh, my preparation for cases so that I could give my client um, the best opportunity to uh, to win, um, you know, and uh, to present the case in a uh, story form or in a narrative that would give the jury a competing version of facts instead of just sitting back and letting the prosecutor put their case in and then, um, you know, uh, uh, letting them deliberate. Um, I realized that there had to be a competing version of facts and another story, so to speak, that the jury could chew on um, and uh, that that would put my, that would give my client a fighting chance. Um, I realized quickly when I was a public defender that I didn't want to make rookie mistakes in the in, in my first few trials. I realized that there was no way to avoid it, but I also wanted to uh, try new things out and fall flat on my face in an environment where um, my client wouldn't suffer. And so I went around uh, going to different trial seminars and trial workshops. One of the ones that I landed on was the um, Criminal Defense College in uh, Macon, Georgia, and it was an incredible experience. Um, I went down to uh, Georgia for a period of about two weeks, and it was an incredible boot camp that they put us through. Uh, we had mock trials. Uh, they broke down every aspect of the case from opening statement to uh, direct examination to cross-examination to brainstorming. Nothing was left um, uncovered. Uh, we also uh, had the opportunity to cross-examine actors who were playing the roles of uh, witnesses and uh, police officers and what have you that were coming into court. 
Um, so it was an incredible experience and it really um, allowed me to make, like I said, the mistakes that I probably would have inevitably made in the first few trials um, if I didn't go to this workshop. Um, so, you know, in, in the, in the, um, you know, in the, in the theory of not doing any harm to your client, um, I don't think there can be anything better than uh, going to a workshop like this and getting a real experience on your feet uh, with um, coaching and, um, um, you know, and tips along the way um, that really are encouraging and that uh, help you to find your, your, your own way and help you to find your voice in the courtroom. So I am eternally grateful for uh, all of this experience. Um, I'm also eternally grateful for um, my training before I ever went to law school, and that was in theater. Um, I was a theater arts major in college, and um, even, um, in, even after law school, I continued my theater training by attending conservatory in New York. Uh, I'm a trained actor, and I do a lot of uh, classical theater productions. Um, and I can't tell you how much that has been helpful to me as a lawyer. Um, you know, it really helps to center me and to constantly pull back um, and look at the human aspect of uh, the case. Um, and I think that as lawyers, we can sometimes get, how can I put it? Um, we can sometimes get bogged down by... Um, the minutiae and by the things that only really have any meaning to us based on our legal training and yet we're arguing the case to lay people uh, to jurors that uh, don't have a uh, don't have legal education so it's sometimes important to step back and say oh how would a person without immersion in you know three years of law school you know view something like this and um, I've learned that there is no better practice sometimes than to uh, rehearse in front of your friends and your loved ones um, that also your colleagues in the in the office too you certainly can take advantage of that but um, as I said don't overlook the fact that you're arguing your case to a um, to a to lay people who you know um, are viewing your case through the lens of their personal experiences. Um, so I think that that is a very important note to take with you. So we're going to get started here with some quotes um, that um, really appeal to me. Uh, one of them comes from the United States Supreme Court case of Nix versus Whiteside. It says that the very nature of a trial is a search for truth. Um, another quote um, was from the case of Lilly versus Virginia. That's a 1999 United States Supreme Court case. And um, they were citing uh, Wigmore. Um, who uh, stated that cross-examination is the greatest legal engine ever invented for the discovery of truth. 
So these are kind of the cardinal rules of cross-examination um, that I live by um, and that I learned uh, very quickly were effective in the courtroom. Uh, now, there's degrees of variation to these. Um, I, I don't think that it's a good practice necessarily to deviate from them, but the extent to which you use them will vary based on you as a person and you um, as a lawyer. Um, so control. Essential to a good cross is the ability to exercise control over the witness at will. Now, by control, I'm not referring to the type of control that you would um, see in a, um, in, in a movie uh, where there's a villain that is, you know, looking to control his uh, a victim. You know, it's nothing big. It's very subtle, actually. Uh, but it is necessary to have control over the witness. Otherwise, um, there are a number of things that can befall you. Um, to exercise control, a good practice is to ask succinct questions, short, succinct questions um, that really focus the witness and that um, lend themselves well to monosyllabic answers. And the reason for that is because, like it or not, in cross-examination, you as the attorney are doing the testifying. The witness, um, and I hate to degrade them, but they're there basically only to respond yes or no. Anything more than that is going to, um, is going to disrupt a very tenuous balance that exists when you're, uh, when you're cross-examining. And that is this whole notion of credibility. You always want to take the high ground. You always want to have more credibility than anybody else in the courtroom. Um, now, naturally, you know, that's a heavy task because um, most of the time the judge is uh, deemed or viewed upon as uh, the person who is all-knowing and omnipotent. But aside from the judge, you want to be the truth master. You want to be the truth teller. You want to be the person who the jury can turn to all the time for the truth. And studies have shown that the more the witness has the opportunity to testify in a narrative, the more their credibility rises and the quicker your credibility as the uh, cross-examiner goes down. So what we've learned is that when the attorney is testifying and is simply um, looking upon the witness for affirmation of what they say, that tends to lift the credibility of the lawyer higher. And uh, that's the practice that we try, that, that's like my um, through line when it comes to cross-examination. I do the testifying, the witness responds in a monosyllabic yes or no. Now, it's easy to attach a negative stereotype to control, uh, but again, I'm not using the term here in the sense of domineering, intimidating, or bossy. It's very subtle. Um, and control need not be hostile or it need not be arrogant. 
Um, as a matter of fact, um, those are huge turnoffs to a jury. The objective here is to conduct a smooth flowing fact by fact cross without distracting verbal mannerisms. Um, and by verbal mannerisms, I'm referring here to questions. I'm referring here to questions like, "Isn't it a fact that uh, we're not? We're, we're going to eliminate those um, filler words. We're going to eliminate those filler words right away, um, and we're not going to ask uh, or begin each question with uh, with, "Isn't it a fact?" Now, the following is a useful method for learning control. Rule number one, ask only leading questions. And there are a few reasons why we only ask leading questions. First, any information um, that is being conveyed to the jury must come from the attorney and not from the witness. This is what I was talking about before, that you as the attorney are doing the testifying. You want the witness to merely confirm the information with a monosyllabic yes or no. At the risk of being crass, the witness should be viewed as nothing more than a stooge who responds with one answer to each question, yes. Uh, there's also another metaphor that I like probably even better than stooge, and that's a dog. Uh, who I'm sure you just heard barking in the background a little while ago. Um, it, it, I, I've heard um, so many creative attorneys um, refer to the witness as a dog. And the reason why is because uh, if you have one or if you uh, have been around dogs, you know that they can very easily be, and I hate to use this term, but bribed with treats. And that's what we're actually doing when it comes to um, cross-examining a witness. Uh, Daryl Dan uh, Dancer in the National Criminal Defense College would use this example in such a creative way and say that um, you know the dog gets praise or the witness gets praise when they're cooperating with you, and then there are times when you might, uh, when the witness might run astray, and where you need to. You need to take a piece of paper and you need to roll it up, and you have to kind of um, uh, you have to kind of uh, um, uh, swipe them on the nose a little bit with that paper to um, scold them and to get them back in track. So it's kind of like uh, <laughs> uh, if you're following along, it's kind of like an example where you know, you're giving them a little bit of sugar or a little bit of um, spice, and at, at the same time, you're giving them a little bit of a shock. Um, and so the dog analogy works really well. When the information comes from you, your credibility rises in the eyes of the jury. The jury says to themselves, this attorney is honest and well-prepared. We can trust him. Second, when the information comes from you as the attorney, it's presented in the form desired by you. And this is, this is also something we're going to talk about some more. But as you are planning your cross-examination, you really want um, to cull the facts together that you need to rely upon to make the strongest argument at closing. And to the extent 
that you can craft your cross-examination where your words are the ones that are getting the affirmation, you can then use those statements um, in your cross-examination to marshal together your closing arguments, um, relying upon what the witness said. Because even though they, it came from your mouth, it was affirmed uh, affirmed to by the witness. And so that, it was as good as it came directly out of their mouth. Um, and of course, if you give the witness the floor, um, and they start talking in the narrative, their credibility rises. And also, you don't know what bombshell the witness is going to um, set off if they get the floor and they begin talking. Um, there's a rule that we're going to get to in a little bit that you don't want any damage to befall your client when you're up cross-examining. And the simple reason for that is because by by it being your turn and by it being you as the cross-examiner um, and you as the, def as the um, defendant's attorney, it has a ring of you endorsing it. So it's even more damaging when it comes out on cross-examination cross than when your adversary calls it out from a witness because the jury, of course, expects bad stuff to come out when the prosecuting attorney is asking the questions. But if it happens on your watch, it's even that more devastating. Third, the witness will be discouraged from explaining and will develop a habit of responding obediently. And that's the type of um, dog training that we're looking for. We're trying to train the witness as if we're training a dog to um, give us the paw or to, you know, um, and in, uh, or to roll over. Um, but in this case, it's to train them to respond in a monosyllabic yes. Examples. Question, what are you wearing? Um, now, the criticism here is that this is an open-ended question. Um, what are you wearing? How about this? Are you wearing socks? This is a little better, but it's still not leading. Um, it does not invite the you don't want to invite the witness to volunteer information. That's when things go south fast. How about, is that a shirt you have on? Still insufficient for establishing control over the witness. You want to avoid beginning questions with the words are, is, do, or did. How about you have on a shirt, don't you? That's great. And here are some variations of that question. Isn't it true that? You do have, don't you? It is a fact that, isn't it? So you can, you know, you can, you know, you adapt it around your own words, but it is a direct question and that and lends itself well to a yes or no answer. One caveat caveat about the phrase is, isn't it true that you do have, don't you? It is a fact that, isn't it? We don't talk like this in real life when we're speaking amongst friends and family, you know, and sometimes you have to, you know, you have to laugh about it because, you know, it's something we only do in a courtroom and yet, you know, we don't do it in any other aspect of our lives. So why are, do we just happen to do it in a courtroom? It's too formal and it's a turn off to the jury. That's one of the reasons why jurors sometimes, you know, call lawyers snobby or arrogant or, you know, uh, stuffed shirts. 
Um, these are nothing more than filler words, um, and we have been using them since time immemorial, um, and they were even embedded and enshrined in a lot of the uh, Perry Mason films that we grew up on. So it's important that we try to break that as difficult as it might be. And for me, it's something that it's my default. Um, it comes out if I'm not consciously trying to avoid it. Um, but again, it's a crutch, in my opinion, um, because it's relying upon, um, you know, what we think we should be saying in a courtroom as opposed to having a very simple conversation with a person. And uh, we do that when we're at the kitchen table, you know, um, talking to family and friends or when we're in a restaurant. We do this all the time. So it just requires a little bit more attention and um, almost like a, um, almost as if it's like a uh, stop, you know, that we need to put on ourselves and, um, you know, and, and realize, okay, we don't need to be this formal, you know, even though we're in a courtroom. As a great Terry McCarthy once said, you want to talk to the jury the way you talk to a friend in a bar. So yeah, that, what I was getting at before is like forbearance. So even though it's our default sometimes, you want to pay attention and forbear from using those words and try to really be well-crafted so that you know what your next question is going to be and you don't need to use those, um, you know, those uh, verbal cues, um, you know, in order to um, in order to buy yourself enough time to think of what you're going to say next. Sometimes the power of just being silent and gathering your thoughts and then asking the next question, um, you know, after processing what the witness said is important. Um, and I don't mean to go off on a tangent here, but it is so critical to listen to the witness. Uh, so many times, um, and I fall, I've fallen in this trap as well, once you write out your cross-examination, which is a practice I endorse and I fully encourage, it sometimes is very easy to get be so absorbed in what you're going to ask next that you don't listen to the answer. Um, and I suppose that if you're only getting monosyllabic answers, you know, then you're not going to really need to stray much from your cross-examination roadmap. But every now and then, the witness will go astray. It's normal. We're, they're human. And um, sometimes what they say can quickly be turned into something favorable to you or can be neutralized if you listen and if you take the time to process it. There's no rush here. There's absolutely no rush, and I get what's going on because I experience it all the time. You have 12 jurors staring at you and waiting for what you're going to say next, but even though sometimes taking the time um, to gather your thoughts feels like it's an eternity, it really is only a short period of time, and that silence actually gives the jury time to almost to, to think with you and it allows them to follow along better. Um, so don't overlook the power of listening and of, you know, responding 
um, as opposed to, you know, um, just going on to your next question and ignoring what might have been a bombshell from the witness. Um, and there are times when you're not going to have anything clever, and that's another trap you don't want to fall into. Don't try to be clever. Don't try to go wit for wit, tit for tat with the witness. Um, it is it it never ends well, um, and there are times when you know you might be able to turn something that they say, uh, might be able to neutralize something that comes out spontaneously that you weren't expecting them to say, and there are times that you can sometimes turn that into a positive. And there will be some examples that I show you later on in the presentation, but those times are rare. Um, but that still doesn't mean you ignore everything. You have to listen even, even when your cross-examination is written out and fully scripted. You might have noticed that I've inserted question marks at the end of these phrases. At the same time, you don't want to be tricked into believing that they are questions in an inquisitive sense or that you should put emphasis on the last syllable of the last word so that it sounds like a question. Um, a lot of times, you know, these are really statements. Um, and like I said, even though there's a question mark at the end, um, it doesn't it doesn't mean that you have to use voice inflection to raise it to a question in the sense that you might when you're talking amongst friends. What if the witness doesn't confirm your affirmative statements? In other words, what if they are what if they just start rambling on and they turn into a runaway witness? You can encourage them with an occasional don't you or right. Now, I'm asked sometimes, does this mean that it is never appropriate to ask an open-ended question of an adverse witness? And the answer is not necessarily. Um, and the reason I say not necessarily is because it does depend on what type of proceeding you're in. If you are in, say, a probable cause hearing and um, there's not a lot of information that has been made available to you at that stage, um, you might want to ask um, a question, uh, an open-ended question that is probative to you know, something to, you know, to uh, a fact in the case. Um, you want to be careful here, though, because keep in mind that when it becomes part of the record, it's fair game later on at a trial, you know, by, um, by the prosecution, um, you know, and a lot of the things that are sometimes said by defense, that are said by defense witnesses at a probable cause hearing can later be used to impeach their credibility if they subsequently testify at trial and they testify inconsistently to what they testified to at the earlier hearing. So a rule as rigid as one that inflexibly prohibits inquiry into an area of incomplete knowledge and that's really what we're talking about here, going into an area of um, where you need some more information. But if we were to, to craft a rule that prohibits um, outright any inquiry into an area of incomplete knowledge by way of open-ended questions, that would deprive an attorney of potentially helpful information. When can you explore an area in which your knowledge is lacking? We just talked about one such example when we're in a probable cause hearing. Um, now, 
If your questions will do no harm to your credibility or to your case, it may be all right to proceed. So I think that's the golden rule here. Um, doing a litmus test and asking yourself, will this question harm um, my, my client's credibility or my case? If so, then you want to think twice before asking it. Again, this is when it comes to open-ended questions. But if it won't do any harm to your credibility or to your case, you may want to proceed. Decisions about whether to initiate a certain line of questioning should be made by balancing the potential good versus the potential harm. Now, this does not mean that you will have the luxury of um, meditating over it for a day. You might have a split second to make that decision, and that's oftentimes what happens in the courtroom. Um, every, things happen um, at lightning speed, so you don't have time to cogitate over it. You have to make split-second decisions. And I have to tell you, sometimes the hardest thing in the courtroom is to forbear than to ask the one question too many. But always be careful. If, if, it, if it hits you hard and there's so much running through your mind, I take a second or two to gather my thoughts. And if my mind is still racing and I can't put my finger on, you know, what I want to ask or, um, you know, what information I'm or, or, or what I think I'm trying to get from the witness in that moment, then I may forbear from asking the question altogether uh, because I don't want to, I don't want any harm to befall my client and I don't want to ask an open-ended question that is going to have a devastating answer um, and, you know, because I'm not prepared for or I haven't fully thought out what the response is going to be. So sometimes, like I said, it's best to forbear. In the back of my mind, I can hear the clever words of my evidence professor saying, when you know, you want to be the one to tell the jury. When you don't know, you should not pretend you do. So rule number two, one fact per question. Why is this? So here are some examples. Question, you have on an orange and yellow striped shirt, don't you? The criticism here is that this is actually five questions. You're asking the witness if they have a shirt. You're asking them if there's more than one color in that shirt. Third, you're asking them if the color is orange. Fourth, you're asking them if one of the um, colors is also yellow. And fifth, you're asking them if the orange and yellow are arranged in stripes. This is like a long sausage that has been hastily thrown on a platter without being carved up into chipolatas. It overwhelms even the hungriest stomach. It's far better to establish each of these points separately. So think about it. What if the witness were to answer no? What part of the question does he disagree with? He might be quarreling with one fact in the broad question or multiple facts, but you'll never know. So very simply, a negative answer is ambiguous. Like I said, does a witness dispute shirt or orange or yellow or stripes? When one fact is posed per question, the witness will be forced to agree to each separate fact. In addition, greater emphasis is achieved when progression to the ultimate point occurs very slowly and gradually. 
Compare what we just, the example I just um, gave you to, you have on a shirt, right? Second question, it has two colors, orange and yellow. And the orange and yellow are arranged in stripes. So those are five questions. And rule number three is that you need to know the answer. This is what I was getting at a little earlier. Um, so here's an example. Question, your belt is leather. The criticism of this question is that leather and vinyl look alike and the witness may say no. How about this next question? Your belt is leather or a leather-like material. That's much safer um, because it then, you know, makes it harder for the witness to answer, no, it's, um, it's vinyl. You know, they might not agree that the belt is leather, um, but they would probably agree with the general statement that it's a leather-like material. Again, what we're looking to get here or elicit here are yes answers. And that is why that's the through line. We want to establish control through these yes monosyllabic answers. So if they were to answer no and start expounding on that, again, their credibility rises because they're now testifying in the narrative and your credibility goes down. So we're looking to craft questions that are succinct, and are direct and that are conducive to or eliciting a yes answer. Um, and that's going to help us get flow and get this into, a, into almost like a conversational um, uh, medium uh, that's going to be easy for the jury to follow. And this is your story. You're doing the storytelling. If you take out the witnesses' answers in the transcript, you have a perfect um, picture of the narrative that you're presenting and, um, and the story that you're telling the jury. That's why we're looking to do the testifying as opposed to the witness. Avoid characterizations and conclusions. That's rule number four. So example, question, your shirt is preppy, right? Criticism. In the witness's opinion, he might not be ready to sport this shirt on the cover of Esquire, and he might reject the suggestion that his shirt is making a fashion statement. He might even become so indignant about it that he begins to argue and he begins to um, uh, dig his heels in, so it'll then be difficult to rein him in. Try instead, your shirt is predominantly blue. How about this? this? As a second question, it has white letters embroidered across the front. Third, the letters are raised. Fourth, they are made of a soft material. Fifth, they form a word. Abercrombie. So in those six questions, we've established um, that it's probably a preppy shirt, um, or at least the jury can make the inference from that because you have established now that the shirt that the witness was wearing was a blue Abercrombie shirt with white um, letters that, are, that were raised um, and that had been embroidered across the front. So the inference that you're leaving the jury to make 
um, is that it's an Abercrombie shirt. And, you know, most people associate Abercrombie with being preppy. Um, so this is all really going to storytelling um, and the magic of storytelling in the courtroom. Um, and not to go off on a tangent right now, but we absorb information in stories. Um, this is how our ancestors um, at the campfires would um, express themselves. And this is such an alluring and attractive way of presenting a story um, and presenting a version of events through storytelling. Um, you know, you can you can just remember from the time you were young, um, you know, those stories that were read to you by your mom and by loved ones and how focused and tuned in you would be when you heard these stories. Um, and this is the same thing. I mean, jurors are craving for something to latch onto and if you are able to um, paint pictures for them in their minds with your storytelling, it's, it's going to be easier to get them to your side um, than if things come out disjointed and, um, you know, um, uh, disjointed and messy and sloppy. If you present for them a clear, coherent version of your story, um, that they can follow along with, um, you're going to pick up a lot of points. Be cautious about beginning any question with the word so or therefore. Questions like these should be reserved for closing argument. The infamous one question too many usually begins with so or therefore. What's the one question too many? Uh, there was this uh, story um, that goes back to um, Abraham Lincoln when he was a criminal defense attorney. He was cross-examining the prosecutor's witness. Initially, he brought out that the witness was bird-watching. Then Lincoln suggested to the witness that he, the witness, had not seen the defendant bite off the victim's nose. The witness agreed. We are told by Irving uh, Young, Younger that Lincoln should have stopped and sat down, but he continued and violated the sacred sacred commandment of asking the one question too many. Lincoln's last question to the witness, the one question too many was, quote, so if you did not see him bite the nose off, how do you know he bit it off? Of course, the witness responds, I saw him spit it out. In other words, uh, Lincoln should have simply stopped after establishing that the witness did not see the nose being bitten off. This is a great story and makes the point for the one question too many commandment, but it also has some shortcomings. Now, what do I mean by that? For starters, the prosecutor gets to redirect the witness. And what will the prosecutor's first question be? You guessed it. If you did not see Ned bite off the nose, how do you know he bit it off? In the first instance, when Lincoln asked the one question too many, he looked foolish. In the second instance, when Lincoln observed the commandment and it was left to the prosecutor to bring out this damning information, Lincoln looked like he was holding back or hiding something from the jury. 
this would have caused the jury to distrust him. And as we know, a cardinal rule is that we want to build credibility, not lose credibility. And as you can see here, if Lincoln observed the commandment and didn't ask the one question too many, but if it was brought out by his adversary in uh, redirect, then it was going to be very damaging because the jury was going to think that he hid this fact, this inconvenient fact from them. Second, we are never told what are the characteristics of the one question too many. So you want to demand the answer and we're now moving on to rule number five. You want to demand the answer to which you are entitled, which is yes. So example, your shirt is blue. What if the witness were to answer, I guess so? Now, we're assuming here that the witness's shirt is, in fact, blue. So by answering, I guess so, the witness is, you know, is... I'm not happy is the, the, um, what the witness is really saying here is, you know, defense attorney, I don't want to be here. I don't want, I don't want to be subjected to your questioning. And, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to be, I'm going to be difficult. So the subtext to, I guess so is go F yourself. You want to try repeating the question. Um, if this doesn't work, eliminate alternatives. So, again, you know, you can repeat the question, and um, sometimes the witness will then just say yes, uh, or you can eliminate alternatives and ask, your shirt isn't red, and of course he's going to agree with that, it isn't green, it isn't red, it's blue. So, you know, you kind of, you know, mock, uh, mock and chide the witness a little bit, to um, help restore some control. And the jury will see what you're doing. And they'll appreciate it because they'll realize that the witnesses, you know, just got, you know, just got, you know, an issue and that, you know, he or she is, you know, not cooperating. Uh, but they'll get it. They'll get the point real fast. Either you will win or the witness will be the one who looks like a fool. The reason why this is important, even for the most benign question like this shirt, is that it reinforces the concept of control. If you are sloppy, and because some people will say, well, why don't you just let it go? I mean, why are you going to, you know, uh, make such a big deal about this? If you let it slide by without correction, the message you will be sending the witness is that it's okay to diverge from yes. And it's okay to be recalcitrant. This will only get worse as the cross goes on. Don't forget the expression, if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Rule number six, use primacy and recency. Um, that's something that uh, we've learned through storytelling, that what is spoken in the beginning and what's spoken at the end is remembered more by um, spectators and by viewers than what comes in the middle or what comes in the first one-third or what comes in the last one-third. So you want to start on a high note and end on a high note. For us, it's not a KO punch, but it's actually a fact that we can start with that will get us a yes answer. And it's usually a question that will get affirmed to you 
by a yes answer at the end. Uh, you don't want to end with uh, the witness quarreling with you and you being in a an argument with the witness because nobody wins those. And, um, you know, you want to end on a strong note. But like I said, it's not a Perry Mason moment. And as I'm going to talk about uh, later on, these um, Perry Mason moments um, are virtually non-existent. Um, so, you know, you want to be able to end on a strong fact that can be affirmed by the witness. Most trial lawyers start cross with a salutation. We also like to introduce ourselves. We greet the witness almost always by name and we try to be polite and civil like we're asking them out for tea and trinkets. So example, good morning, Mrs. Smith. I hope you had a pleasant trip to the courthouse this morning. Let me introduce myself. I'm John Smith. If you don't hear or understand me, stop me anytime and let me know. I'll repeat the question. This won't take long. And I, I've done it myself in the beginning and I see many um, lawyers do it. But if the jury could speak back from the jury box, they would be screaming, get on with it, Mr. Trial Attorney. And especially in today's age, more than any other, the attention spans that um, jurors have are very low. Uh, we, in the last two years of this pandemic, have gotten so used to immediate gratification. And you can see that yourself, I'm sure, with how um, your work has, how, how, you know, the way you do work has evolved and how demands um, of your time are made um, and how you're expected now to respond to emails almost in real time and um, to be as accommodating as you possibly can, um, you know, and get on Zoom calls, um, you know. So it, it's, we're living in an age right now where things are, like I said, immediate gratification and um, attention spans are very low. So if you don't get right to the meat of it, you're going to lose the jury. And in some cases, you're going to repulse them because they don't want to hear all of these salutations and greetings. They're turned off by it. Uh, that's why you need to be as well-crafted as you possibly can. If you can't capture their attention in the first second, in the first couple seconds, they're going to start drifting off, and it's going to be harder to rein them back in and to get them back. So you gotta, you gotta come out strong with, you know, with, um, with, with your first question right away, and um, you gotta, you gotta sustain it. So, like I said, I mean, this is a bit of an exaggeration, but I think you get the point here. Um, these are arcane and form formal incantations that have been, you know, being used in the courtroom since time immemorial, and it's kind of carried over to the next generation of lawyers, um, you know, as a way that we talk. Um, but, like I said, um, this is not how you know, real people want and, you know, uh, jurors want to hear things. A study done at Duke found that jurors are turned off by these. They want the lawyer to jump right into cross and deliver a message. This is what's meant by primacy. Um, so I do have a slight digression here into how I view cross. Um, there's a metaphor. Um, it I think that when you watch 
um, or when you read transcripts of uh, good cross-examinations. And what's good? I mean, look, what's good to one attorney might not be good to another. It's very subjective. But, you know, viewing across through these rules, I can identify one that where these rules are being applied and it might not be the cleanest uh, cross-examination, but it gives the lawyer a fighting chance for making the arguments that they want to make in closing. Uh, so it's not going to be a work of art or a Picasso painting. Um, and there are going to be times when, you know, the witness has escaped and, um, you know, gone uh, rogue on the lawyer. But nonetheless, you know, a good solid cross-examination really strategically gives you an opportunity to make strong arguments at closing. And so I find that the cross-examinations that I prize have an organic flow to them. And I view them in three segments. The first segment is the launch off uh, from the rocket pad. Um, you've seen rockets being launched. Um, and it takes a lot of kinetic energy to get that rocket off the launch pad. Uh, most of it is in the takeoff. You see all the power. You see the flames. Uh, the rocket is hardly moving. And then slowly it begins its upward trajectory. The second segment is the booster rocket where you want to get out of the atmosphere. The third segment puts you into the stratosphere. The objective, of course, is to have a enough kinetic energy to launch the space shuttle into orbit and, of course, not to fall down to Earth. Um, that's the problem for most cross-examining attorneys, including myself, staying in the stratosphere, sustaining it. Um, I can usually get started on a strong note, but I sometimes can get lulled into... Um, uh, going down and quickly after I've gotten into the stratosphere. So it's very important to stay in the stratosphere. Uh, most good cross-examiners can get themselves into the stratosphere, but how long they can stay there is another story. Let us apply primacy to cross. Consider a purse snatching case. Let's say that Sally leaves um, the tavern around midnight. She has to walk four blocks to get home. The second block requires her to walk under an overpass. Although lamps once um, kept the overpass um, illuminated, um, the dark, and the, although the lamps had once um, uh, brightened the darkness underneath the overpass, they burned out some time ago and they were never replaced. It is pitch dark underneath the overpass. As Sally is walking, she sees the shadow of a man jump out from behind a pillar. The assailant snatches her purse and runs away. On direct, Sally identifies Ned, your client, as the man who mugged her and stole her purse. To add insult to the injury, she says, I would never forget his face. It's been indelibly um, ingrained in my mind. You must now cross-examine Sally. The idea is to start with primacy, your strongest fact. As hopeless as this case might seem, there are always good facts lying underneath the bad ones waiting to be discovered. What are the good facts? Well, 
you need to identify what type of case you have. It's an eyewitness identification case, and it was pitch dark when Sally saw her mugger. Your defense uh, is likely to be mistaken identification. Note, however, that other good themes might exist. First, other bar patrons might have seen Sally taking uh, shots at the pub throughout the night, and um, who knows, they might be able to describe her as being drunk or three sheets to the wind before leaving. Second, it is a, second, it might be a cross-racial identification. Third, Sally's description of the mugger might not completely fit Ned, so there are other good themes. We'll use the fact that it was dark as our theme for primacy. You might begin your cross by asking, it was dark out that night. Often, primacy is thematic. Another great source of primacy is impeachment. Personally, the one that gives me the greatest pleasure and that I can't resist um, is available only in criminal cases when cross-examining the deceptive snitch with a prior criminal record who sits in jail plotting his own freedom at the expense of your clients. And how about this for primacy? Question. We can agree that you are a convicted felon. If he has prior indictable convictions, um, that's a beautiful question to get started with. Or if that doesn't do it for you, you could always start with, you would do almost anything to avoid going back to jail. Just as you want to start on a high note, so too you want to end on a high note. This is what is meant by recency. Let's return to the purse snatching case. Assume, as it is often the case, that Sally is not a drinker. Um, and it, she's probably a volunteer who was raising money for a charity to help um, find homes for abandoned and neglected children. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and let's suppose that there is no cross-racial identification and that her description matches Ned in every respect. That's probably um, more consistent with reality. But we still have it was dark as our primacy. But we don't have anything else for recency. What do we do in that case? You want to accept your limitations. Um, and that's an important thing to do because... We oftentimes think that when our back is to the wall, we have to move the wall. Uh, but you do want to um, admit that they're, you know, your weaknesses and where you're defeated um, because that really helps you to craft how you're going to deal with certain things that are beyond reproach. Um, if you're in denial about those things, or if you shrug them off and say, you know, I don't think that they're really that significant, they could very well be the sine qua non of the case and be the very thing that the jury hangs their hats on, you know, when they go to deliberate. So you don't want to ignore, um, you know, or um, stick your head in the sand like an ostrich on these things and, you know, just say, well, it is what it is. You really want to brainstorm them, especially when they're bad, because sometimes you can neutralize them. So what do we do, you know, in a case where we have a good fact and we're, we've used it as primacy um, and it was that it was dark under the overpass? 
Well, your recency might also be that it was dark under the overpass. And, you know, it's what you want to remember here is that you don't want to conclude cross with an open-ended question, um, lest you repeat the same mistake as Abe Lincoln. Um, if you do that, then the jury is going to remember that more than any other um, more than any other moment in your cross because it's coming at the end. So at all costs, you want to avoid asking an open-ended question um, in cross uh, for fear that you know a bombshell could be revealed and that is going to be the last moment. Um, and it, there's going to be nothing more dramatic than to sit down after the witness just ate you for lunch and uh, destroyed your client. So it's far better to end with it was dark under the overpass, even though it's the second time you asked it, uh, than to ask an open-ended question that gives the jury the opportunity to, um, to crush your client. Rule number seven We've discussed this already, but maintain credibility throughout. It's everything. That's all we have. Absent it, the trial is lost before it has even begun. Everything that you do in the courtroom should revolve around establishing and maintaining credibility with the jury. Your client's case absolutely depends on it. Uh, you never want to violate the sacred trust that you form with the jury. Tips for maintaining credibility. Your affirmative statement should never be inconsistent with the theory of your case. Remember also that there will be redirect. One of the biggest dangers is when, when an adversary's redirect makes you appear unfair or sneaky, as in the Lincoln example. Rule number eight, be patient. Oh my gosh, uh, I fall into this all the time, uh, rushing, and I sometimes don't even realize that I'm doing it, um, and it's something that I need... I need others to point out for me at times. But, um, and the reason I'm aware of it now is because I do it a lot as an actor um, as well. And one of the things that I've learned as an actor is that rushing is the enemy of the moment. Um, it's sometimes better if you go up on lines to just let fall silent and it will come back. Um, it happens. Um, it happens even to professional actors uh, on stage uh, where they'll drop a line. But it's very important to just relax. And that's why tension is the enemy of uh, the lawyer. It's the enemy of any performer. Because when you're tense, uh, number one, it affects your voice. Your voice gets held up in your throat. But it also affects your ability to think and to process um, and to uh, be what I might refer to as um, uh, malleable or flexible in the moment and to be able to go with things. When you're tense and stressed out and your shoulders are up to your ears, um, you're not doing your best work because your creative channels are shut down and you're in a fight or flight um, mode. So it's very important to sometimes ground yourself by just taking a deep breath. There's no reason to rush anything. Um, as 
I would be reminded time and time again is that they can't start without you. And that goes for even when you're in the middle of a cross-examination. Um, it's far better to sometimes take some time and go back to your notes. Um, and even though it feels as if the time is minutes and minutes are bleeding into you know 30 minutes or more your silence in taking the time to uh, collect yourself or look at your notes is actually really nothing more than uh, than seconds um, and that oftentimes gives the jury the opportunity to follow along with you better um, and um, you know and and that is huge because you never want to lose a jury so um, be careful, be patient, take your time, don't rush. Another thing that we're taught as actors is that things simply take the time they take um, and that you want to live the moment out as fully as you can. Um, I'm, also, I'm also reminded that sometimes, you know, allowing your true expression to come through as a cross-examining attorney without trying to curb it um, is is actually beautifully human in a courtroom where it's very sterile and it's frowned upon. Now, of course, we're not talking about big, you know, outbursts or anything like that, but sometimes, you know, if you get an answer from a jury that, uh, from a witness that is totally, um, that is totally incongruent with the question that you asked, and it stymies you, you know, it, a look of, of puzzle, puzzlement or uh, a, a look of really, you know, that comes upon you can speak so much in the courtroom. It doesn't have to be verbalized all the time, but allowing those true impulses to come out, you know, through facial expression, I think is priceless. And the jury gets to see uh, the human behind the lawyer. Um, and that really goes a long way to building credibility. A cardinal rule um, that we as actors follow is to work from moment to unanticipated moment. That's what makes acting so spontaneous. That's why you don't see, um, you know, you don't go to the theater to hear an actor read lines. You go to the theater to hear them infuse those lines with themselves, with their humanity, with all of their, you know, uh, peculiarities and idiosyncrasies um, that are unique to them. Um, you know, that's why we see Hamlet, you know, we see different versions of Hamlet. We don't watch it once and are done with it. We want to see the individual adaptations that were brought to it by different actors. Marlon Brando, um, great um, British actors. We want to see how this actor brought themselves to the role. And that's why we're hungry for, what, for seeing the very same story um, told in, by different actors all the time. Returning to the courtroom, and this applies to lawyers as well, when we return to the courtroom, recall that the one fact per question format not only keeps the witness under control, but adds emphasis to the point being made. Impatience and rushing could sacrifice both. Also, as eager as you might be to pounce on your best point, you have to have something juicy for the end. Otherwise, in the words of the great poet T.S. Eliot, you'll go out with a whimper instead of a bang. Rule number nine, do the client no harm. 
to me, this is as sacred as an oath that we take um, when defending a client accused of a crime, to have no harm befall him when we are in control of the proceedings. If the witness utters something damaging on cross, it is twice as bad as when it happens on direct. Why? Because you elicited it. And because you elicited it, it um, it's as if you are endorsing it. It has a ring of truth that goes beyond what it would be, what it would sound like if your adversary called it out. Um, and again, that's because the jury isn't stupid. They know that bad things are going to come out um, that are elicited to by the prosecutor. Um, otherwise, the prosecutor wouldn't have a case, you know, so they know it's going to come out. Uh, when the prosecuting attorney does a direct examination. But for it to happen on your watch is even more devastating. Rule number nine, continuing, this is yet another reason not to ask the witness any open-ended questions. Rule number 10, close off all escape hatches. Uh, the cross-examiner who patiently eliminates every conceivable escape route before taking the witness head-on puts himself in the best position of trapping the witness. This often comes up in impeachment during the accreditation stage. So here's an example. An officer testifies on direct to a fact that is inconsistent to what he wrote in his police report. You want the jury to consider the earlier statement, in other words, the one made in the police report, as being the gospel truth because it is more favorable to your client. Now, the more you do to explain the reasons that the officer had for being complete and honest at the time he wrote his report, the more the jury will believe that he probably was. Let's take a slight digression to discuss the steps involved for impeachment. Um, I reduce it to three steps. These are what I was taught uh, when I was a student at the National Criminal Defense College. So these are not my own. These are simply what I was taught and that I rely upon um, as when I do my cross-examinations for and when I uh, craft an impeachment. Step one is to recommit. Step two is to accredit. Step three is to confront. So let's go back. Recommit. By recommit, it's to remind the witness and the jury exactly what the witness said on direct that you intend to contradict. This is called recommitting. Step two, accreditation. This is the part where you set the scene for the earlier statement. Step three, confront. This is where you let the jury know exactly what the witness said before. Practically speaking, here's how it works. Step one, on direct examination, officer, you said that you saw John throw a bag of drugs onto the ground. Now we move to step two. I'd like to show you a copy of your police report. Is this your report? This is the report that you wrote following your arrest. One of your responsibilities as a police officer is to write police reports. Following an arrest, you file a report of that arrest. Your reports are received by others involved in the investigation. They rely on the information in those reports. Your supervisors rely on your reports when deciding what action to take. You want to assist others who are involved in your investigation. So, of course, you are thorough, accurate, and complete when writing your report. A police report must include all of the details, right? Because you are only human, 
and you might forget things if you don't write them down when they're fresh in your mind. Now, if there was something that you forgot to include in your report, you could also file a supplemental report. You didn't file a supplemental report in this case, right? Step three, I'd like to show you a copy of your police report, officer. Take a look at the first sentence of the third paragraph. It says, I did not observe anything in Mr. Smith's hands. So as an aside, I'd recommend concluding the impeachment there. You have all the ammunition you need to drive your point home in summation. Um, and just to back up here, um, I would say that the, the thread um, that we're working with in this impeachment is that the officer in his report said that he did not see anything in Mr. Smith's hands, but then he later testifies in trial on direct examination that he saw something which, of course, um, is going to be suspicious if, if not, you know, damning like drugs in your client's hands. So you, of course, want to rely on the police report um, to establish that the officer never saw anything in Mr. Smith's hands. And that's why you're going through this painful and arduous detail um, to bring up the level of his police report and to establish that the police report carries with it the absolute truth and not what he is in such a self-serving way testifying to today, you know, months and months and months after the fact in court. He wrote this police report when things were fresh in his mind. He understood that um, what he was writing in that police report would be relied upon by his superiors. He understood how important it was in his report to put out everything because it was going to become a part of the investigation. Um, and things were fresh in his mind at the time he wrote this report. And so it all goes to the pointing out that officer, that the officer, that, uh, that the report carried the truth, uh, the gospel truth. And what he is saying today about now seeing something in Mr. Smith's hands could not possibly be true because he, if it was, he would have written it in his initial report. And you also closed off escape hatches by saying, officer, you could have filed a supplemental report if there was something that you remembered later on and that you wanted to supplement your original report with. And of course, he never wrote a supplemental report. So this is how you raise up as the truth the underlying police report that was written to and how you uh, use that to impeach, how you use the non-existence of a certain fact in the report to impeach his credibility to what he is in such a self-serving uh, way presenting on direct um, in court today. Daryl Danzler, former dean of the National Criminal Defense College, dubbed this rule, never insult the alligators before you finish crossing the swamp. This is rule number 11. Let's set the stage. You are cross-examining a critical government witness. You are in an area in which you are unable to establish your point by prior statement or through other witnesses. Cooperation of the witness is essential. This is where you don't want to engage in uh, pillage and plunder. Um, if you need to establish uh, certain facts from 
a critical government witness, the last thing you want to do is poke the bear and begin to um, be adversarial with them from the very beginning. Um, if you need this witness, you want to thaw a little bit and you want to um, make sure that you are um, not necessarily, uh, you know, indulging them, but you want to treat them with kit gloves because you need them here. The key here is the manner in which the questions are asked. The tone should be empathetic. Accusatory wording or a hostile attitude will almost always result in the witness putting up a wall and being uncooperative. Example, question, Miss James, you wanted to help catch the man who did this terrible thing to you. With sympathy. Uh, that's, okay. Question, you knew the police needed a description so that they could look for him. And you gave them a description because you wanted to help them. You saw them taking notes when you described the man, right? And what you told them was, and then you might read from the victim's statement, this sets up an incomplete description to imp impeach an eyewitness identification. Not surprisingly, this will backfire if it happens on the heels of a pillage and plunder strategy. So this is why it's important to adapt, or adopt rather, an empathetic tone. Therefore, the technique is most productive early in the exam. Hence the expression, never insult the alligators before crossing the swamp. This cooperative technique also depends on your willingness to adapt quickly to alternative justifications in order to maintain agreement. You might have noticed a subtle thing that when I was asking Miss James these questions, um, I was able to put myself in my shoes. And, you know, when I did that, I recognized that she wanted to help the police as much as she possibly could to help them catch this person who did this terrible thing. So that's why, you know, it wasn't just the tone that I adapted, adopted, but you can, you can see here in the third question, I asked her, and you gave them a description because you wanted to help them. Because that's really what she wanted to do. She wanted to help them catch the person. And this was a terrible thing that happened to her. So that's something that you will never get her to quarrel with, that it was a, a benign thing and that, you know, it just happened as if it were a fact. This was truly something horrible that happened to this woman. And, you know, you have to acknowledge that. So when I asked my first question, I said, you, Miss James, you wanted to help catch the man who did this terrible thing to you. Because in her mind, it was terrible. And in the juror's mind, it was terrible. If you're relying upon a mistaken identification, you don't have to be afraid of that. Because your defense is, you know, your defense isn't that it didn't happen. Your defense is that my client, Johnny, didn't do it. He wasn't the perpetrator. And again, you know, this depends on your willingness, this, uh, on your willingness to adapt quickly to alternative justifications in order to maintain agreement. This is not the time to insist on your exact words. So you don't want to be literal here. You want to be essential. Rule number 12, don't lose sight of the target. 
Never forget that your goal is to persuade the jury, not the witness. This is why you don't want to get into an argument with the witness. The people that are deciding your case are not the witnesses. They are the jury. They are the jury. Don't be afraid of them. Um, you know, I find that sometimes it's very easy to feel threatened by the jury and the, um, the cold eyes of the 12 uh, of those 12 angry men from, you know, Hollywood. But they're really, uh, what I found is that they tend to be open-minded um, and they're going to come in with their own, you know, um, uh, their own uh, experiences and their own, um, you know, biases. But what I found is that all in all, they are mostly open-minded and you don't want to be afraid of them. Um, so one of the biggest traps attorneys fall into is trying to convince the witness that they're wrong. These attorneys are looking to capture a Perry Mason moment that influences the outcome of the trial in one fell swoop, where, where the victim unexpectedly blurts out, oh, God, you're right, I made a terrible mistake. Your client wasn't the man who robbed me. And as we know, that never happens in real life. Instead, focus on putting dents in the witness's armor one at a time. At the, at the conclusion of your cross, you might be surprised to find that the aggregate number of dents is just as damaging to the witness's reputation as the unexpected bombshell that goes off during a Perry Mason moment. As Posner and Dodd, and I want to give a shout out to Posner and Dodd in their cross-examination book, um, they break this down in such a beautiful way with real-life hypotheticals um, and, um, you know, it's really worth the read. Um, as they eloquently state, the credibility of witnesses in cases bleed to death from a thousand little pinpricks. Rule number 13, keep your emotions appropriate to the situation. I don't know what, um, you know, uh, what, um, you know, uh, some lawyers think uh, when they get into the courtroom, um, you know, especially when their emotions are incongruent to, you know, what a witness says, um, and yet they feel that they have to have a big, huge reaction. Um, and I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, but the juror, the jury can feel that that is so unreal and fake and artifice, um, and it actually goes to lower, it goes against credibility building and it actually, you know, makes them view you in a lesser light. It also uh, gives them the opportunity to bleed more for the witness um, because they realize that the witness is on the hot is in the hot seat by being cross-examined and how unpleasant that feeling must be for all of the uh, for all of the eyes in the courtroom to be on that person. So you don't want them to you know, become empathetic and to bleed for the witness because you're being snobby or arrogant or boisterous uh, when it's not necessary. So what I always say is be true to yourself. Um, and, you know, that you'll find your voice as a lawyer in the courtroom, and you'll oftentimes find it long before your first trial. You'll find it when you're up on your feet, you know, representing clients at arraignments and conferences when you're interacting with the, with the judge, 
on the record, and that carries through to your courtroom uh, demeanor uh, in trial. Uh, you don't have to be anyone that you're not or somehow heighten um, your behavior um, to make the point that what you're hearing is so outrageous that it doesn't have the ring of truth. It can be done subtly and is oftentimes more effective subtly. Um, and it's more of like a letting go and of a surrendering to your real impulses than to try than to try and um, fabricate something. Um, because like I said, the jury can see right through it. It's fake, it's artifice, and um, it doesn't uh, look well on the lawyer. A contradiction on a minor point may be corrected better by using a prior statement to refresh the witness's memory than to do a full-blown impeachment. A concession from an adverse witness may be more important than discrediting them. So you always want to be mindful of this. As a colleague of mine once said, never shoot a mouse in the ass with a cannon. <laughs> I love that expression. Rule number 14, get permission for the kill. When you've got the witness on the ropes and you are salivating to unleash the final blow, wait until the jury gives you permission. Um, in the world of theater, uh, for me, this is like starting out a monologue, yelling or crying. You have to earn it first. You can't go, you can't start on such a high note, especially when your monologue um, goes through so much emotion and has a climax at the end and where there's a build. If you start out at the top with everything and, um, and you empty out the tank at the top, there's going to be nothing left at the, in the middle and in the end. Um, and it's a wave. It's, you know, we as humans, you know, don't go that way unless it's something so traumatic, like God forbid, you know, we hear of about a family member, you know, that has been in a fatal accident. Uh, our reactions are generally not, you know, so high and so heightened at the top. And like I said, you've got to build that trust with the jury. Um, and you don't want to go right for the um, kill at the beginning. You've got to earn it and you got to get permission for the kill. So even when you've got the witness on the ropes and you're salivating to unleash the final blow, wait until the jury gives you permission. So forbearance, once again, is coming up here as a huge, um, as a huge trait that you want to uh, rely upon. If you strike too soon, as I said, the jurors will identify more with the witness than with you. Until they share your sense of outrage at the witness's deception and overt attack can cause the jury to come to the witness's rescue and to instinctively protect him or her like a mother bear protects her cub. The great Daryl Dantzler takes us on a ride back in time to Roman civilization to emphasize this, this point. If you can visualize the courtroom as the Roman Colosseum and the jury as Caesar, Withhold the fatal thrust until you perceive the downturned thumb. Then have at it. It's one of those little moments that makes life worth living. So I think we're going to end here on this note. Um, this has been a real pleasure for me to present um, this, uh, this series on cross-examination. I always welcome questions. Feel free to reach out for me anytime at all. 
and I'd be more than happy to chat.